Okay, if you'd uh, grab your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. So there was a movie made uh, many years ago that in many ways uh, depicted what actually happens uh, to, to some families. It's the story of a young Jewish man who was rejected by his extremely orthodox father um, because he was a jazz singer, uh, while his father wanted him to be a singer in the synagogue worship as well as the son was involved with the Gentile woman. Uh, the father in the story not only rejected his son, but was involved with, uh, but he viewed him uh, as dead, like he didn't exist. He wouldn't speak to him or associate with him in any way. Cut him off and cast him away. The good thing is in the movie, they had a good good ending, not always true to life, but the ending was that the father and the son reconciled uh, with one another. And uh, th th that scenario is not unlike what we see Paul revealing in Romans 11. In this passage, we, we see uh, the third main point that Paul is giving an explanation of God's dealings primarily with Israel as a nation. Uh, the first point you'll remember in chapter 9 was that God is absolutely sovereign when it comes to uh, salvation, divine sovereign election. The second point that he made at the end of chapter 9 and going through chapter 10 was that people are absolutely responsible for uh, the choice that they make to reject the gospel and, and they're ending up uh, in the lake of fire, separated from God forever. And this third point that Paul is making is introduced with the very first verse uh, where he asks the question. I, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And by his people, he means the Jewish people. With what he said in chapters 9 and 10, it appears as though he is suggesting in fact, that God has completely and finally rejected the nation of Israel. That he's cast them off and cut them off. It seems like he said that he's cut them off entirely and he's cast them away permanently. In contrast, what we'll see in this chapter is, is really a case study in which eternal security is actually seen and God's dealing with the children of Israel is chosen people of old. And the story, the story uh, that we read up here is like the jazz singer movie. That was the title of that movie. Uh, it has a good ending. It does. Paul will state explicitly that God is not through with the nation of Israel, with the Jews. And in fact, the day will come, he will say, in which all Israel will be saved. So the issue of God's dealing with Israel was raised by way of what Paul had written at the end of chapter 8. Maybe you recall this, hopefully you do, that all those that God has predestined and, and foreknown and called and justified and glorified are eternally secure in his love. Nothing can separate them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And that raised the question among his Jewish readers, the objectors that we've seen throughout the letter who were referred to as God's chosen people in the Old Testament, but had clearly uh, rejected Jesus of, uh, as the Christ. And because they had rejected Jesus, God had set them aside. That's what Paul has been saying. But what this case study will reveal is what is communicated by the popular phrase, it ain't over till it's over. That's the sermon title. It ain't over till it's over. I wasn't going to use the fat lady singing thing, you know, that would be insensitive. It ain't over till it's over. So conclusions about God's relationship with Israel had, had been arrived at by, by the Jewish objectors without careful consideration of all the facts. And, and the truth is, God is not done with his people, the Jews, with Israel. He has a great day in store for them. And bringing this truth down to you and I, I think, is important. As I study this section of Romans 9, 10, and 11, and particularly this passage before us today, I'm all the more confident in my relationship with God. Hopefully you will be as well. I'm, I'm confident that nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord, because, because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. I go away from this case study of God's dealing with Israel with a firm conviction that what God has promised me in the love of Christ it is guaranteed. It's guaranteed and nothing can change that. So before we jump into the passage together, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are thankful for this portion of scripture in which we are finding out much about you and rejoicing in that, that you are the sovereign one who had a plan of salvation which you bring about in the lives of people because you chose them from before the foundation of the world and you called them in time and you drew them to repentance and faith and it's, it's all your work and we are so thankful for that. And we've seen so much about ourselves as well, that we are responsible before you and, and the, the gospel call is that we, that we must obey is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we don't believe, then we will spend forever away from you. And, and we are responsible for our choices. Even as your children, we are responsible for the choices that we make that dishonor you and bring destruction into our own lives. We recognize that. Well, you are sovereign, and it doesn't take away our responsibility. And we're thankful I'm thankful that we look at this last portion of this section today and, and conclude from it that we are absolutely secure in your love for us. So praise be to your name. Help us to understand it. Help me to communicate what you once said to the glory of your name. Amen. So in this text, Paul reveals three things about God's dealing with Israel. And the first of those, uh, if you're filling in your insert, you're going to put a word in there. Israel's rejection is, was and is partial. It's partial. And that's verses 1 through 10. So let's read those verses and then we'll kind of walk through them. So I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. 
For I, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and, and they seek my life. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So again, the question at hand is, has God rejected his people? This is coming from the objector. And in fact, if I were translating this phrase, it would be more literally this. God has not rejected his people, has he? God has not rejected his people, has he? It's a rhetorical question, really. And by the way, the Greek word for rejected that is used here, apatheo, also means to push aside or to repudiate. And the question, again, is being raised by the objector to Paul's teaching on the gospel, and Paul answers the objector's question with his characteristic and vigorous by no means. Or your translation may have, may it never be. Um, the suggestion for Paul is unthinkable. It, it, it may seem like a logical conclusion, right, to what he has said, but it is not even a possibility because God is faithful. God is faithful to keep his promises. It is impossible. It is just impossible to think that God would choose people and then reject those people. The apostle will make it clear that God has always maintained a remnant, a remnant of his chosen people, Israel, to be part of his kingdom. And he does that by way of two examples. He uses himself First, as an example, so you want to write in Paul, the contrary persecutor. Paul, the contrary persecutor. So he supports his negative answer by no means uh, to, to the objector by using himself as an example. He says, I myself am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember the question the, the objector raised. At, at, then what you're saying is that God has rejected his people, right? And Paul says, absolutely not. Look at me. Look at me. I, I myself am an Israelite, a, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And, and so it is though Paul is saying, you want proof? You want proof that God has rejected his people? Look at me. I was the great antagonist of the followers of Jesus, the one who fervently sought out the followers of Jesus, those Christians, to bring them harm and even death. And yet, 
God has taken me, the Jewish blasphemer and persecutor of the church, and saved me by his grace and mercy. I, for one, have not been rejected by God. That's what he's doing in that verse. He said, I'm an example. God hasn't rejected his people. I'm one of you, son of Abraham. And he hasn't rejected me. And then the second example is Elijah, the confused prophet. The confused prophet. Since Paul was not a, you know, a favorite person among most of his countrymen, he uses another example which would, with which or with whom they would be quick to associate. Elijah. Elijah, who, uh, while being a great prophet of God, at, at, at times it, it appears that he got a little confused. Uh, Paul quotes from part of 1 Kings 19, where Elijah is confronted by God. So the story, the context is Elijah had enjoyed a, a great victory over the prophets of Baal, that false god, on Mount Carmel. And, uh, 450 prophets of Baal and then another three or 400 other false prophets as well. And, and it was the contest, you know, who, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve Baal, or are you going to serve the living God? And there's a contest of God sending down fire. Will your God send down fire, or will the true God send down fire? You've read that story, I'm sure, and God answers Elijah's prayer with fire and looks up the, the sacrifice, not just the sacrifice, but all the water, and not just that, but even the stones of the altar, and God answered. So great victory, and then they, they killed over uh, all those false prophets. Well, Jezebel, the queen of Israel, the wife of Ahab, uh, she didn't like it much. <laughs> she was rather perturbed over that, and she threatens Elijah's life. Basically says, uh, this day is not going to pass before you're going to be dead. And so he who had shown great faith in the Lord in chapter 18 suddenly demonstrates a great lack of faith in chapter 19. And he literally, literally runs for his life, running faster than Ahab's chariot. <laughs> he runs for his life and he ends up in a cave where he has an encounter with Yahweh, with the Lord. And uh, God's penetrating question to him was this, what are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> and God is really good at asking the right kind of questions throughout the scripture. Where are you, Adam? What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah's uh, response is what Paul records in verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and and they seek my life. And the pronoun they in that, they have killed your prophets, it's reference to Israel, to the people of Israel who had been following after Baal. And he says, you know, they, they, they want to kill me. Elijah had added up all the factors and came up with the quotient of one. Well, two, I guess, crying out that he was the only one of God's worshipers left. As far as he could tell, he was all alone, and the false God worshipers were trying to kill him. It's just him and God now. And Paul records 
God's response to Elijah as well. God says, hey, Elijah, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Elijah was looking at, at it all wrong, and that's why he ended up with the wrong number. Ended up with number one, all by himself. And he thought the equation was essentially, I am alone, it's just me and God. And instead, God kept back for himself 7,000 men. Uh, That's the uh, seven being part of that is the number of perfection or completion. It could have been more than that. It could have been uh, men and women on top of that. But 7,000 were still faithful in their worship of the one true God. They had a special relationship with God. They were his people. They, they were foreknown by God and chosen by God. And, and so a remnant had been maintained by God, right? A remnant had been maintained by God. So the right equation, if you're filling in your blank, is A plus B plus C equals eternal security. That's what we'll see. Notice in verse 2. It says, God has not rejected his people whom he has foreknew. The question is, has God, for, has God you know, rejected his people? And Paul's really saying, God has not rejected his people whom he, what? Foreknew. So the first part of the equation, or letter A, if you're filling in your blank, is foreknowledge. A equals foreknowledge. It is the security presented to the nation of Israel, which God foreknew in an intimate way compared to all the other nations. He knew Israel in a a special way, as well as, we should say, the security of each and every believer is tied to his foreknowledge of us, his foreknowing us. It's founded on his foreknowledge, his intimate and relational knowledge of his people before time began. So remember, I covered this back in chapter 8, but I'll mention it again. This is not the same as omniscience. Omniscience is the attribute of God that says he knows all things, past, present, and future, the actual as well as the possible. Foreknowledge is different than that. Foreknowledge is a reference to God relationally knowing people before they existed, before they were born. In essence, it takes us all the way back to before creation. God relationally knew his people. So A equals foreknowledge. The second part of the equation, or letter B, is God's choice, God's choice. Paul says that in in the same way that God had chosen for himself 7,000 men in Elijah's day, so there was a continuing remnant of Jewish believers who were chosen by God, who had trusted in Christ all the way to the present day, right? That's what he said, up to this day. So the emphasis is on God's choice and his ability to bring about his plan and purposes for his chosen, his choice. Notice as it says in verse 4, I have kept for myself. I have kept for myself. So you got God chooses, in his foreknowledge, he chooses 
to be relationally intimate with certain people that will come about in time, and he keeps them in that condition. He keeps them. They don't keep themselves. He keeps them. So this is grounds for confidence of eternal security for all those who have been called, chosen and called by God. They are kept by him. Uh, let me read you Jude 24, and I think Joel will have it up there. Jude verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you, get that? Yes. Now to him, that is God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God is able to keep you. Just as he is able to keep a remnant in the Jewish nation all the way up to Paul's day and I would say all the way up to our own day. So he is able to keep us secure. The third part of this equation, or letter C, is grace. Grace. Notice that the remnant is chosen by grace, it says in verse 5. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And then in verse 6, Paul highlights that grace rules out the idea that God's choice was in any way based upon human works. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If works of any kind were to come into God's choice and foreknowledge and calling, etc., if it were any part of it, then it would cease to be grace. It would be negated. Just like water and oil do not mix, neither do grace and works mix when it comes to salvation. Now, grace does produce works in us, but when it comes to being saved, it's not based on works in any way. That's what he's saying. The gift of grace and salvation ceases to be a gift if, in fact, we were to insert any kind of meritorious work into it. But grace by itself is a sure foundation <laughs> which leads to great confidence that we are eternally secure. That's the right equation. A plus B plus C equals eternal security. Foreknowledge plus God's choice plus grace equals us being secure in the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Yeah, amen. There ought to be a whole lot more amens to that, but... Maybe there's a little bit of thick skin and hard hearts going on here. That's what you're going to fill in next, thick skin and hard hearts. That's where Paul goes. Now, what he's saying there is that those outside of that equation, A plus B plus C equals eternal security, those Jews who, who had not responded to the gospel of God's grace, that they are outside of that equation, they're, they're actually presented as having thick skin, and hard hearts in verses 7 through 10. So what Paul has said doesn't rule out the, 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 that the majority of the Jews had failed to obtain 
what they were seeking. And he's, he, he's just said, has, has God rejected his people? No way. Don't even think that. I'm an example. Elijah is another good example of the 7,000. But that doesn't mean that God's saving them all. That doesn't mean that God is saving them all. He says the majority of the Jews failed to obtain what it was seeking. Well, what was it seeking? It was seeking a righteous standing with God, being right with God on the basis of works. We saw that earlier in, in the beginning of chapter 10. Those who refused to believe the gospel of grace, but instead pressed on in their search of righteousness through works, are then said to be hardened, right? Hardened by God. They're hardened. Not only have they hardened their own hearts like Pharaoh did, but God hardened their hearts all the more because of their hard hearts. So the Gentiles, he says, who were elect were justified by faith. How that must have stung the Jewish objector to hear Paul say that. Those who were elect, meaning the Gentiles, when they thought they were the elect ones, you know, the elect were justified by faith, he says, but the majority of the Jews were hardened by God in their refusal to believe. Hmm. The Gentiles believed, the Jews did not. So like skin that gets calloused from manual labor, so the hearts of those pursuing a right relationship with God through good works became callous toward God and the gospel. The word that is used, translated hardened there, refers to that, the like thick skin, the inability to sense things, lack of feeling. It's kind of like me with my knees now. I get down on my knees and it's just wrong because I don't have any real feeling in the, my knees anymore. So it's like, that's just wrong. I can't feel the same way. I have a, one of my fingers doesn't have all of its senses either from uh, frostbite. And, and, and it just I'm used to that now, but it just felt wrong for the longest time. I've got a scar on my neck. Uh, where I had surgery, and after the surgery, I had I have no feeling there. So I can't shave with a straight razor anymore because I'll cut myself because I don't have the sensitivity to the blade going over the neck. That's the idea of being hardened, thick skin and hard hearts, he says. And more than that, it says he says that God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. So a spirit of stupor, that, that phrase refers to not being able to think satisfactorily because of bewilderment. It's like, uh, I, it's like I'm bewildered what I'm seeing. I don't understand it. Of course, there are else, uh, other places where Paul talks about that very thing, that the hardness of heart will result in an inability to think rationally, to see things rightly. And that's what he's saying here. And the way this has worked out in, in the lives of those who had rejected the Gospels is that though they had eyes, they couldn't see. And though they had ears, uh, they couldn't hear. They couldn't see uh, the truth about Christ, and they couldn't hear. They were like, they were deaf to what God was saying through Christ and the Gospel. Jesus had said it to the Pharisees himself, in John 8 and verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear 
my word. Right? And so Paul's point is that Israel's rejection was partial. I mean, there was a remnant kept. Praise the Lord for that. But uh, the rest were hardened. Uh, you know, uh, this not seeing and not hearing uh, made me think of the, the times years ago when we, Carol and I would be on a drive. Maybe we were driving out to you know, Glen Allen or whatever, and, and I would see a moose standing on the side of the road and say, hey, Carol, do you see the moose? And she would, where? I don't see it. So, it's right there. It's right in front of me. Don't you see it? No. Oh, oh, too late. It's gone. We passed it. And now she spots them better than I do, typically. And she'll say, hey, did you see the moose? I'm like, where? I can't see it. I can't see it. It's like, it's right there. You know, and I couldn't see it. Or I remember times where I'd be out hunting with Pastor Tom and Sandy and maybe someone else, and, and I, we'd be in camp, maybe eating lunch or something like that, and I would hear some clacking of antlers going on up in the woods, and I'd say, did you guys hear that? Sometimes I'd say, hear what? I said, that didn't, you didn't hear that? Listen, you don't hear that? Hear what? They couldn't hear it. I, I think I just have better hearing. Uh, but they couldn't hear it. And that's kind of what it was with the Jews. They couldn't see the truth about Christ. And they, you know, even his miracles. Like, they saw the miracles, saw the effect of the miracle, and yet they didn't see. And they, they heard the truth about Christ, and yet they didn't hear. They were deaf to it. Israel's rejection was partial. Secondly, he says Israel's rejection is, was, and is purposeful. That's verses 11 through 24. Now I'm going to read those verses now. <clears throat> so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Then if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing part of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be gathered, grafted in. Well, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, 
provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, uh, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now that's a long section, and some of it is like, what? Right? It's like, what? Branches and dough and roots and... I'm not, a, I'm not a gardening guy. I don't really get this kind of stuff. It's kind of confusing. Well, it really isn't all that confusing. Paul is saying that Israel's rejection is purposeful. That's the main point. He, and he introduces it again with a rhetorical question, which is followed by his characteristic and vigorous negative answer. So I ask, he says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? This is coming again from the objector. Just to what Paul said in the first 10 verses, it's like, so what you're saying, Paul, is that you know they stumbled so as to fall. More literally, I would translate it, they have not stumbled with the result that they fall, have they? Meaning that's what was thought by the objector, that that is what Paul meant. And he says, by no means, may it never be. It, it may seem as though Paul is building a progressive argument against Israel, that because of their hard hearts and their inability to see or to hear the truth of the gospel of grace, they are unsalvageable. But that is far from the truth. He's already presented the truth that Israel's rejection was partial, not complete, right? Verses 1 through 10. And now he presents the fact that the rejection was purposeful in the plan of God in verses 11 through 24. Now we should take note of two words that he uses here, stumble and fall. You know, again, read the statement. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Not only are they different Greek and English words, but in the context, they mean something different. The one suggests a condition from which one may recover, a stumble. You can recover from that. And the other presents a condition that is more complete or final. So one author writes it this way, the one who stumbles may get up again, pull himself together and stand on his feet, or he may fall and lie on the ground. And falling then as a possible result of stumbling is perhaps a figure for the eternal ruin which threatens to overtake the Jews through their stumbling. The stumble turns into a fall, and the fall is a continuing condition. So Paul states categorically that the Jews did not stumble so as to fall completely. Let me use a boxing metaphor to express this idea. They went down, but they weren't knocked out. They went down, but they weren't knocked out. It made me think of years ago, a fairly unknown boxer by the name of Buster Douglas uh, fought and defeated Mike Tyson, who was thought to be unbeatable. Now, while Buster was knocked down in the eighth round, he got back up 
and he went on in the 10th round to knock Mike Tyson down for the count. So in the same way, Paul is saying that while Israel has been knocked down, they're not out for the count. They're not completely, you know, out. So Paul then explains the purpose God had in allowing Israel to be knocked down or to openly reject Christ and the gospel with the result of them living in darkness and hardness of heart. And in this section, he explains that God's purposes and the result uh, of Israel's rejection was twofold. And it's found in the one verse. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So the first thing that he says as far as God's purpose in their being knocked down uh, was the salvation of the Gentiles. Salvation of the Gentiles. Again, I've mentioned this before that the world is built uh, into two people groups, Jews and Gentiles, as far as the biblical record, Jews and Gentiles. And this, he says, was what God was doing with Israel has brought about salvation of the Gentiles. So the unbelief of the Jews resulted resulted in the gospel going out to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, right? The hardness and rejection of Christ and the gospel of grace led Paul to take it out to the Gentiles, that great message. And, and that's what Paul experienced wherever he went. Whatever city he went to, he always went first to the Jewish synagogue, if there was one, and he would share Christ and say that Christ was the fulfillment of all the promises given in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. But they overwhelmingly would reject what he had to say, and so he would turn to the Gentiles in that city, and the result generally was that many would be saved. Now let me give you an example of that out of the book of Acts. In chapter 18, verses 5 and 6, we read, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he's saying that what, you know, what Jewish reaction to the gospel was purposeful by God to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Second purpose was to produce jealousy for the Jews. That's what he says. God's intention in this process was not only that the Gentiles would obtain the riches of salvation by faith in Christ, but he also purposed that through the Greeks believing, turning to Christ, the Jews would become jealous with the end result that some would be saved as well. Paul wrote it this way again. Now I'm speaking to Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry only for this reason, in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them, verses 13 and 14. So the picture Paul presents is, I, I look at it as something like watching children, young children, play with toys. And I say children, plural, right? children, plural, playing with toys. One child may grow quickly tired of playing with a specific toy and he'll set it aside. But let another child pick it up 
and begin to play with it, and suddenly the first child, you know, wants it back. It's mine! It's mine! And that's kind of the idea. God's purpose in bringing Gentiles to salvation was not only for their benefit, but it was for the saving of some Gentiles by causing them to have a jealous reaction that that they would want what the Gentiles gained, which was a right relationship with God. I want God too. I want a right relationship with God too. Now, on a sad note, instead of showing God's ancient people, the Jews, the attractiveness of the way of faith righteousness, the Gentile churches often treated the chosen people of the Old Testament with hatred, prejudice, and persecution, and all sorts of evil. I mean, this passage actually is a strong warning against an anti-Semitic attitude, isn't it? It's a strong warning against it. We, now, we do not need to support everything that the nation of Israel is doing at this present time. I mean, they are a secular nation by design, not a religious nation. Their politics are secular. Their government is secular. So I'm not saying that we have to support everything that they're doing, but what this passage is telling us is that we should realize that their rejection over time, over history, their rejection of Christ is what led to our salvation. We should be thankful for that. We should be praying for their salvation and that God would use us to draw some of them to faith. From there, Paul begins to use a horticultural lesson. Actually, he kind of mixes two metaphors. That he's like uh, baking and horticulture. I mean, it, you know, the verse reads, if the dough offered is first fruit, so that's kind of baking, is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. So what it basically is referring to by the first fruits or the root are the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, etc. They were like the dough offered as first fruits. They were holy because God made them holy by faith, right? Made them holy by faith. And, and, and they were like the root of the olive tree, they were holy because they put their faith in Christ. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, right? So Paul put it that way. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump is holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But the point that he's making here is that the nation's beginning was holy in the sense that the patriarchs believed God and they were reckoned as righteous uh, before God. But as time passed, the Jews turned from believing uh, in God and, and he had broken off some of the branches of the olive tree. That's the Jews. He had broken off some of them, the, actually the majority of them. Read their history. Read through the book of Judges. And you'll see how they continually turned and went after false gods. And that history continued even after there were kings. There were brief periods where they would get right with God, you know, in a sense, when David ruled and when Solomon ruled. And then it started going down the hill. And then it was one king was good and the other was bad. And, you know, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse over time. So he'd cut off branches 
the Jews, and he grafted in some branches from a wild olive tree. What's that? That's the Gentiles. So it's really not that hard to get. The lesson is clear. God had rejected many in Israel because of their unbelief, but he had received many Gentiles in their place because of their faith in Christ. The difference between the two groups, then, of branches is not works of righteousness done in the flesh, but faith righteousness as a result of grace and mercy, God's mercy. And we should not miss the the important point that he makes, and that is that God's actions or working with the Gentiles should result in humility and not pride. Should result in humility and not pride. He, He goes on to warn the Gentiles, right, as a group, not that they should be arrogant towards the Jews, for God is both uh, kind and severe. <laughs> Note the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, and, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now this, I, I want to point this out, this last phrase, you too will be cut off, has been wrongly used to support the view that a person can lose their salvation if they stop believing you know, in, in Jesus or in, in the gospel. And that's precisely not what Paul is saying. We have to recognize that Paul is talking about people groups here, not individuals. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. And so when he says, you too will be cut off, he's referring to Gentile people, Gentile people group, who could be cut off in unbelief just as the Jews had been cut off because of unbelief. And so if it was unbelief that led to Israel being cut off, it would it could lead to being cut off as Gentile people group as well. So, listen, doesn't Paul's point about humility remain true for us as well? I mean, this is a practical application. We should understand that we have received something from God that we could not, have not deserved. We, we could never deserve what he's given us. It's only by grace and mercy and God's choosing and foreknowledge and predestination of that divine sovereign election. It's only because that is true that we've been brought into a place where we can enjoy the riches of God's salvation. And we should never be arrogant or prideful that God chose us because he didn't choose us because of who we were. He chose us because of who he is, right? So there's no... Pride and look, he chose me. Puff out the chest. No. Bend the head. Bend the knees. Be humble about that. And, and we should never disdain those who have failed to believe the gospel to this point. Rather, we should pray for their salvation and, and do everything we can to demonstrate by our words and our actions the joy of being in a right relationship with God. We're going to stop there. We'll finish this out and, and finish out chapter 11 next week. Um, what do I want us to go away with from this today then? It ain't over till it's over. That, that is true for the nation of Israel, and that is true for us. God will not let us go. We are his 
forever. He will hold us fast. He keeps us. We don't keep ourselves. We had nothing to do with gaining salvation. It was a gift of his grace and mercy. And we have nothing to do with keeping our salvation. We are in the hand of Jesus, who is in the hand of the Father, and no one is greater than him. We can't be pried out of his hand. We are kept by him, kept safe from Satan, sin, and death. We are victorious in Christ. Not because we bring about victory, he gave us victory over that. It's all about him, isn't it? We are the benefactors of who he is. All praise be to him. But in human responsibility, we must understand that because he gives us the security by virtue of what he's done for us, we should live faithful, persistent, constant, humble, lives to the glory of his name we should walk worthy of our calling in Christ and that means that impacts how we live with one another how we treat one another and how we live with unbelievers and how we treat them as well it's all glory to him father we are thankful for this passage of scripture this wonderful explanation by the apostle Paul about your divine sovereign plan, how you, how you brought about something that was hidden, unknown in the Old Testament, that you would bring Jews and Gentiles into one people group, the body of Christ. And that was a mystery, and it was revealed by the Apostle Paul here in this passage and elsewhere as well by the other apostles. And yes, while the, the, the Old Testament revealed that you wanted to reach Gentiles, it was not known that you wanted them to be of no distinction with the Jews, Jews and Gentiles, no distinction. Slave and free, no distinction. Men, women, no distinction. We all come to the same place in our relationship with you, forgiven, redeemed, cleansed, and viewed as righteous because of what Christ has done for us, clothed in his righteousness. So help us, dear Lord, to, to bring you praise and glory and honor. You deserve more than we can give you, but help us to give you our best. And thank you, too, for the food that we're going to eat. We've enjoyed a good meal here, but help us to enjoy the physical food that we're, you've provided for us well. And Help us to give you honor in that and glory. For we praise you in Christ's great name. Amen. Set, none can set, ever.